Turn your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 1. I was thinking about over our last few weeks together, just what we could talk about, and everything always comes back to the church. What the church is, the church is the hope of the world. And all the things that we see in the world and all the ways that the world is kind of going chaotic, the church is always the hope. You know, the world is not more chaotic now than it's ever been. It's just we know more of it because of social media. It's always been a crazy place to live ever since Genesis chapter 3. Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. We take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. Paul says that as we live in this world, we are challenged by the world, but our response to the world is different than the world's response to itself. We are to take every thought captive and make it obedient to Christ. And what that means is every thought that comes into our minds, we are to align with who Jesus is and the gospel of Jesus. So everything we hear, everything we read, everything we see, no matter how popular it is, we have to filter it through Christ, through God's word. We as believers do not have the luxury of just making this up as we go. Our behavior is based on our beliefs. If you go out and at night, and you believe that there is a skunk in the bush outside of the house, you're probably not going to go stick something in there and rattle the bush. Why? Because my belief about what is in there fuels my behavior. We are meaning makers. We not only see things that happen, but we interpret the things that happen. And so when we hear things or when we see things, we in our minds formulate the why behind what we see. There are the facts and then there are our interpretation of the facts. And we all do it because we are meaning makers. Ultimately, God wants us to find meaning in this universe from him. But when we, when we see things, our minds automatically go to, why is this happening? And then we settle on, well, I know why this is happening. And there are anti-biblical beliefs that are fund, uh, fueling much of what's happening in the world today. And so the wrong diagnosis will equal the wrong cure. If you go to the doctor and you have a headache and the doctor says, well, I think you have cancer and starts you on a round of chemotherapy, it was the wrong diagnosis. All he had to give you was some Advil and you end up in chemotherapy. Why? Because the diagnosis was wrong. Paul says in 2 Corinthians, we live in this world, but we don't wage war like the world does. We take our thoughts captive. We filter them through the word. We filter them through who Christ is. We don't read the culture and then find a Bible verse that makes us feel good about that cultural place. Rather, we read the Bible and we interpret the culture through what God's word says. Because God defines reality, not us. Ever since Genesis 3, God defined reality and he told Adam and Eve, you are free to eat of any tree in the garden except the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He defined reality and Adam and Eve said, no, we're going to define reality, not you. We're going to eat from this tree. And so what happened? They dethroned God in that moment and sin entered the world. And if we're not careful, we can do the same things in our own lives is that we, uh, we define reality. We don't let God define reality. Reality is that 
human beings are made in God's image. We talk about the Imago Dei, that inherent in every human being, no matter, regardless of what they look like, where they come, who they are, how smart they are, how much money they make, what color they are, we are all made in God's image. We are all made Imago Dei. That is reality. And yet we see a redefinition of that. Our, our lives consist of webs of personal relationship. And, and there needs to be ways for those rec, uh, way, uh, relationships to be reconciled. Do you know life is, 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 is more like a game of bumper cars than it is the little go-karts at the, at the, at the fair? The go-karts at the fair, what do you do? You start, and you get in the little cart, and one at a time, they zoom around, and then you get to the end, and somebody helps you out of the car. And it's fun. But that's not life. Life is more like the bumper cars. What happens in the bumper cars? The light goes off, the electricity turns on, and what's everybody do? They just go around in a nice circle, right? And they say, no, you go first. No, you go first. No, what do we do? We start running into each other and and trying to uh, uh, have head-on collisions and, and do all those kinds of things. That's life. And so we might be driving along, and guess what? Out of the right hand side, somebody's going to smack into our car. That's just how life is. And so we have these relationships and these webs of relationships in our life. And there was a way back in 1964, and this was even before the advent of the internet, Hannah Arendt delivered a uh, lecture at the University of Chicago. And I, I want to I just read part of this as we, as we get into, uh, before we get into Ephesians chapter 1. She speaks what the active life consists of. What does your life consist of? She says this, every human being's life is able to be told as a story because it has a beginning and an end. But the actions between those two fixed points, what we do when we are acting in the world, have consequences that are unbounded and limitless. And here's a few quotes. The frailty and unreliability of human affairs. Man, doesn't that describe human affairs? The frailty and unreliability means that we are constantly acting in a web of relationship in which every action touches off not only a reaction, but a chain reaction. You're married and you get in an argument with your spouse. That's the action. But what's the chain reaction? I tell my friend, I call my mom, the kids hear us fighting, right? There's a chain reaction. We thought it was just between us. The neighbors hear us, the, right? And so what happens is there's this chain reaction. This means that every process is the cause of unpredictable new processes. A single word or deed could change everything. As a consequence, she says, we can never really know what we're doing. Isn't that human life? We can never really know what we're doing. You, somebody comes up and talks to you, and you give them a reply. You thought you were kind, you thought you were cordial, you thought you were being very nice, and they misinterpreted it, and now they won't talk to you anymore. Why? Because it's this chain reaction. It's this, we never really know what we're doing. Can we just be honest this morning and say, we don't ever really know what we're doing? When we're talking to people, what starts out as a great conversation can end up in a fight, or what starts out as a fight can end up in a great conversation. Why? We're going to talk about reconciliation in just a minute. She says, what makes the frail and unreliability of human actions worse is the fact is that we don't know what we are doing when we are acting. We have no possibility to undo what we have done. Wouldn't you like to go rewind in your life and go back to that moment in life and, and just suck those words back in? Not hit send on the email, not make the telephone call, right? We all want to do that. But the problem is actions proce- act- action processes are not only unpredictable, they're also irreversible. 
There is no author or maker who can undo what he has done if he does not like it or when the consequences prove disastrous. That's human life. There's only one tool to lessen the irreversibility of our actions. This is the faculty of forgiving. Without being forgiven, released from the consequences of what we have done, our capacity to act, what is it where we can find the one single deed from which we could never recover. We would remain the victim of its consequences forever, not unlike the sorcerer's apprentice who lacked the magic formula to break that spell. What was she saying? We, in our living our lives, have these interactions, and we never know how they're going to be received, and they ne- we never know what the, rea- the chain reaction is going to be. And if we are only defined by that moment in life, how miserable we all would be. What if you had to break up with everybody you have ever offended, never talk to them again, never see them again? We would all be very lonely, because if we were only defined by that one moment, we would be locked into that one moment. But what she says is, that's how life is if we're not careful. Well, what undoes that moment is forgiving. Forgiving is not the same as forgetting, but it often accompanies it and certainly encourages it. Forgiveness is letting go of the ability to harm someone with the thing that they've done to us, using that as a weapon against them. Now, forgetting is part of that, but remember, it's not forgive and forget. We can automatically forget. But there needs to be this lessening. And so, what does it do with our, with our cultural climate today? The internet does the opposite. It helps us remember. And it helps us make people approach us from a strange, all-knowing angle. It makes the past hostage. Every tweet, every email, every post, every that you have ever said or done is out there somewhere for somebody to find it. And we can never, in our media age now, be free from our past. It doesn't matter if it was three days ago, or 30 days ago, or 30 years ago, we are now hostage to our past. And so in our current cultural climate, if you, have, if you said something 30 years ago, it's going to be out there for the world to see, and you are going to be canceled. You are going to be nullified. It doesn't matter that you have grown and changed. It doesn't, but the internet holds us hostage to our past. Before the internet, people's mistakes would just be remembered in their communities, in their family, or in their hometown. That's why people could move and they could start life over again. There's, it's the stuff movies are made of. Something happened and I, I did this terrible thing, and so I move across the country and I start a new life. You can't do that anymore. Your past follows you. It's all out there. They're followed even after death, not in a spirit of inquiry or forgiveness, but in a spirit of retribution and vengeance. Why do people scour for those things? It's not so they can forgive, it's so that they can be vengeful. And at the heart of this lies the fact that we think that we know better ourselves than people in history. Because what we say is, if we were back then, we would have behaved differently. How many of you drove an internal combustion engine car today? Not a battery-powered one. Internal combustion. Put your hands up. Everybody? Did you put gas in your car? Yes. Now, we know the way technology is going to go, 50 to 100 years from now, probably won't have internal combustion engines. There'll be some sort of cleaner fuel. There'll be some sort of uh, electric or solar cars. Who knows what they are? The Jetsons are going to be flying around. Now, how are people in 50 years going to view us for driving internal combustion engines? 
you're killing the planet. You're selfish. You're awful. You are whatever. So how many of us are going to sell our internal combustion engines today, buy an electric car tomorrow, because we don't want somebody 30 years from now to think badly of us today? But that's what we do in our our current cultural climate. Because people, we have this modern fallacy that we say, well, you know, if I was in the Garden of Eden, I wouldn't have eaten from that fruit. Well, you know, if I was in Nazi Germany, I wouldn't have turned in my neighbors for being Jewish. I would have hid them in my basement. That's a modern fallacy because we are looking back through the lens of history. And the problem is when we are in that moment in history, we don't have the advantage of looking back in history. We just know what we know now. And so we act in what we know now, and we do things in what we know now. And so, the, so we are held hostage to what we are known now. People make good and bad choices in the places they were, they were in. And now, because of the, the uh, indelible record of, of media and internet, it's never gone. So what do we need? We need some way to be forgiven. We need some way to be set free from that past. And it's, 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 it's just going to get worse as, as uh, our, 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 our comments and our things are out there all the time. You see, the Judeo-Christian perspective runs countercultural to the world. What did Paul say? We don't wage war as the world does. We wage war with different weapons, weapons that can destroy strongholds, those, those spiritual places. And so we need, when we look at the past, we need to have some degree of forgiveness. And what that means is that we want to be forgiven ourselves. Not everything we are doing will survive, right? This whirlwind of uh, retribution and, and, and of judgment. But we have created a world in which forgiveness is almost impossible. Social media and, and all the forces that are at work in our world today, it almost makes forgiveness impossible. The sins of the Father can certainly be visited upon the sins of the Son, but the Judeo-Christian perspective is that the one who sins is the one who will die. The parents don't pay for the sins of their parents. And that is a uh, the Christian biblical perspective is there needs to be a way to set free from our past. Do you want all of your sins, the sins that your parents committed, to be on you if your parent was an alcoholic or abusive or whatever those places we find ourselves in, we don't want to pay for the sins of, of my parents. I got my own sins I need to pay for. And so the Judeo-Christian perspective runs counter-cultural to that. It's immoral to confess sins that you have not committed or ask for forgiveness for sins you haven't committed. But for centuries, the consensus would be that only God could forgive ultimate sins. And on a day-to-day level, the Christian worldview provided this means of forgiveness. And so Frederick Nietzsche talked about the death of God. What happens when you take God out of the equation? And here's what he said. That people would find themselves stuck in cycles of Christian theology with no way out. In other words, we would be in this cycle where we would understand what sin and guilt and shame is. But because there's no God, there's no opportunity for forgiveness. And so we're stuck in this cycle where there is no way out. And that's where we find ourselves in our world today. That people are stuck in this cycle of shame and of guilt and of of, of, of the consequences of that. But they have no way out because they don't acknowledge even there's a God or a Savior, Jesus. And so now we have new religions. Everybody has a religion. Everybody has faith. 
Even the atheist has a faith, a faith system, or a system that, that defines reality, a system that defines the worldview. So for the atheist, their religion, their faith, the definition of reality is there is no God, this is all that there is. And so today, with, uh, with God being pulled out of the marketplace, there are now new religions that we see. One of those new religions is science. And science has its high priest of scientists, and science has the, the liturgy, and science has all the things. And so we have seen that through the, through the pandemic of the coronavirus. If you step out of line with what the high priests of science are saying, you are labeled a heretic. You're not allowed to ask a question. You're not allowed to deviate from the, from the facts. You're not allowed to do that. And so there's now this new science. Because why is it a religion? Because it's what's going to save us. The only way we're going to be saved from coronavirus is through, an, uh, through a vaccine. Science is going to save us. What if there's no vaccine? It happens. Well, there will be, right? Why would you think that? Because we think science is the ultimate. They can do anything. They can create anything to cure anything. Another, uh, another religion is politics. Man, you have got the, the, the high priest, and you've got the liturgy, and you've got the thing. And if you step out of line and don't toe the line, you are labeled a heretic. And so now we have the bowing down to the religion of politics. And everything is political. Why is everything political? Because God put in the heart of us a, a desire. He put eternity in our hearts to connect with him. And if we don't connect with him, we are going to look for our meaning and we are going to look for our purpose and we are going to look through, uh, for our worth in some other way. And so now we come to the hope of the church. All of those things are dead end roads. In Ephesians chapter 1, Paul writes this. And so he looks at this word mystery and we're going to look at that the next three Sundays we're together. And this word mystery is what we're going to focus on. Paul says this in Ephesians chapter 1. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. He made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times reach their fulfillment and bring unity to all things in heaven, on earth, and under Christ. In him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with his purpose of his will, in order that we, who were the first to put our hope in Christ, might be for the praise of his glory. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. Paul talks about the mystery of his will. That word mystery occurs 28 times in the New Testament, and it occurs six times in the book of Ephesians. And it's not a mysterious secret. We think a mystery is something we don't know. But a mystery in the Bible is that God's great plan is he reveals it through history. And so in 
Ephesians, what is the mystery of God's will in the book of Ephesians? The mystery is this, that God is going to bring together Jews and Gentiles together into one body, into a unified being called the church. It's the mystery of the church, that place where our, 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 our hearts and our longings find its deepest satisfaction. It's a people, he says, who have heard the gospel of what? The gospel of truth. There is a reality. There is a truth out there to be heard. And they were adopted. They were brought into this family. You're not born into the family of God. You're born again into the family of God. And as you are born again into the family of God, God is adding all those who confess Jesus as Savior. But it was a scandal. And it was a scandal in the first century. Why was it a scandal? Because it was Jews and Gentiles coming together. Look what he says in verse 4. He says, for he chose us in him. Who's the us? Paul is talking as a Jew. He is talking about his Jewish upbringing, the, the ways, and he talks about his, his education, his pedigree throughout the New Testament. He says, he chose us in him. And then he says in verse 13, and you also, you also were included in Christ. Who's the you also? The you also is the Gentiles. And so Paul was saying that God predestined us Jews. What did he predestined the Jews for? To bring forth the Messiah. When the Messiah came, now there's this new worldwide kingdom from every nation, tribe, and tongue, and language that's going to become part of, the, part of the church. Now, this was a scandal. Why was it a scandal? Well, it was a scandal if you were a Jew. We don't eat with those Gentiles. Remember Jesus talking to the Samaritan woman? And then the disciples thought that was an odd thing. Not only they was talking to a woman, but that she was a Samaritan. Why was it an odd thing for Jesus to talk to the Samaritan? Because the Jews hated the Samaritans. This was a scandal in the early church that people who hated each other, who had no history, uh, who had no common anything, and they were being brought together in this body called the church. That was a truly a scandal. And that was the mystery that God revealed in the book of Ephesians. In fact, Paul says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Do not cause anyone to stumble, whether Jews, Greeks, or the church of God. The early Christians viewed the world that there were only three races of people. There were Jews and there were Gentiles, and there was the church. It was a third race, a new being on the face of the earth. The races were not defined by skin color. They were not defined by ethnicity. They were not defined by location on the globe. They were defined by your spiritual relationship with the, with the God, the creator of the universe. And Paul shows the scandal that there was this new being. There's this new race now that's walking planet earth and it's the church of Jesus. And so there's this challenge throughout the book of Ephesians for us who are part of the body of Christ. Did you ever look around at the body of Christ? Not just here, but the worldwide. It is a mishmash of people. It really is. It is people from all over that they come together. And sometimes we say that, right? We're together. We're like, how did we even get together? It's because of Jesus. What does the world do? The world says you need to stay divided. The world says you need to stay in your little huddles. The world says you need to stay in your little group. The world says you need to stay with your tribe. The world says you need to stay over here. But what, is the, what does the gospel say? The gospel says when you were come to Christ, you were adopted into a family of people that don't look like you, talk like you, or think like you, but they're still part of you. It's the church. 
We don't wage war like the world does. We wage with the weapons that God has given us. And what is the weapon he has given us? It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel is the only thing that is going to reconcile and bring us together. So the first thing that we are to do, the challenge that Paul gives us in Ephesians, is I am to enhance God's reputation on earth. Paul says three times in this passage in Ephesians, to the praise of his glory. We give expression to who God is through our thoughts and our actions. There is this reconciliation of these individuals to Christ. We are part of the church. And then there is a reconciliation of diverse groups to each other. And then Paul's going to go on to say there's even a reconciliation of hostile groups to each other. It's hard, but it's not impossible. It's by Christ, through Christ, to Christ, and for Christ is how this works. How do we do this? He says we have God's blessing. We're blessed with every spiritual blessing. And so when we see a job that's difficult for us, what do we say? I don't think I can do it. I don't have the, I don't have the stuff. I've been in a funk this week. If you ever have to move and pack up and go somewhere, my heart is with you. I'm not helping, but my heart is with you. It is the most miserable experience. Why? You just think it's never going to end. It's never going to stop. And we can think that when things, are, when things are hard and when things are tough. And that's what Paul was reminding the Ephesians. Yes, this is hard. For, can you imagine Jews and Gentiles coming together? He says, you've been blessed with every spiritual blessing. You have what you need. Every spiritual blessing in Christ. You have what you need. He says what? It's in the heavenly places. What does that mean? It's in the heavenly places because there's this intense spiritual warfare that's going on. And if we're not careful, we are going to be part of that or we are part of that warfare. But if we're not careful, we're going to end up on the wrong side. And so I either enhance God's reputation on earth or I detract from his reputation on earth. Look, we have all been upset with Christians, but can we just get over that and be upset with ourselves for once? That we haven't enhanced God's reputation on earth, that we haven't given him the glory, that we haven't put him where he belongs. We get so furious with what everybody else is doing, and I need to be furious with what I am doing. That's where reconciliation comes in. I can be so dignified and justified in what I am doing because I can say, look what he's doing. Look what she's doing. But God says, I'm looking at what you're doing, buddy. Now buck up. You got the, you got the blessings in Christ. You have God's spiritual blessing. And he also says you have God's grace. Remember, the, remember we talked about our actions in life, that we bump into each other. We don't know what's going to happen. We can't control what's going to happen. Our lives are pretty much relational messes when you think about it. It's a wonder anybody gets along in this world. And Paul says, I want to remind you, it's by God's grace. What's God's grace? It's God's unmerited favor. We relate to each other on merited favor. You scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. You're nice to me, I'll be nice to you. You give me a buck. I'll take it and leave. (laughs) No, I'll give you one back. And so grace is we get what we don't deserve. Paul says that's how you got into this thing. That's how you got into this body called the church. We judge others on their worst actions, but we judge ourselves on our best intentions. Can you believe what so-and-so did? And what do we say? I was going to do that. (laughs) Or I wasn't going to do that. We don't have to do anything. We judge ourselves on our intentions, but we judge other people on their actions. Maybe we should start judging ourselves on our actions and giving people the benefit of the doubt on their intentions. Listen, 
Everybody is not out to get everybody. Everybody's intentions aren't bad. Sometimes they're just stupid. Sometimes people just say stupid things. And can we just say, you said a stupid thing. But I'm not going to say you're evil and you need to be canceled. That you are awful and, and, and need to have no platform, have no right to be alive on planet Earth. Can we just get beyond that and just say, you know what? People do stupid stuff. It doesn't make them evil. It just makes them stupid. And I've done some stupid stuff too. One time in my marriage, I did something stupid. And you can ask her to see that. A day. An hour is more like it. But we all do that. And so my job is to enhance God's reputation on earth. It's, it's the praise of his glory. It's rooted in the gospel. It's the tool of reconciliation. In verse 13, you also were included in Christ. What? When you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. If you are uh, up to date on the Core 52 readings, you know that this past week was a talk about what the gospel was. And the gospel was, in the Roman Empire, good news was usually about something about the highest leader of the land. So in other words, if the emperor did something, the word gospel simply means good news. So if the emperor did something, they would issue a gospel. They would issue some good news. When he got married, for instance, the good news would be relayed to the empire. Or when he had a child, or had military success and conquest. And so what was happening, the good news was shared so that people could rally around their leader. Hey, did you hear what Caesar Augustus did? Man, he's awesome. And so the good news was shared. Why? To rally the troops so that they would join around their leader. And so that word for good news is gospel. Now listen to this in Mark chapter 1. The beginning of the good news about Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God. Messiah is a religious term. A Jewish term referring to Dave, uh, Jesus as the, as the royal son of David. But the term son of God is a Roman term. What was, what was Caesar? Caesar, the word Caesar means divinity. It means God. And so Caesar was a son of God. And so what Mark was saying in Mark chapter 1, and if you did your reading, that this verse could have got Mark killed in the Roman Empire. Why? Because he was saying to the Jews that Jesus is the Messiah, but he was also saying to the Romans that Jesus is divine. It ain't Caesar. It's Jesus. And so Mark was an equal opportunity offender. He offended both the Jews and the Gentiles by what? Proclaiming Jesus. And so the Gospels use this form uh, of, the, of the word gospel some 23 times. Now listen, Mark Moore in the Core 52 says this, the gospel is not merely the story of Jesus for the church, but the proclamation of salvation through the church. The purpose of the church is to announce Jesus as the emperor, king of kings, ruler of heaven and earth. The gospel is good news and each of us, or the good news that each of us can what? Have our sins forgiven. The thing we're longing for, the, the basic thing that human beings are looking for in this world today, to have their sins forgiven, which isn't available in the, in the marketplace of ideas. It's only available with the gospel of Jesus. And he says, yet it's more than good news for an individual. It's the good news of a new nation. What does Paul say in Ephesians? There's a new nation. There's this new people. There's this church of God. We call this the kingdom of God because it's global and has an eternal purpose, enterprise. That's what gospel is. And so there's only one message of truth, and that's the gospel of our salvation. And so what Paul says and what the, what the New Testament encourages, I'm to do everything in my power to put Christ on the throne. Through the church, 
Jesus reigns in the world. How is, how is Jesus going to reign on this world right now? Through us. Through the church. Paul says the, the mystery was that God has bring these disparate groups of people, people that even hated each other, had nothing in common, brought them together into this new body, into this new race of people. And why were they brought together? In order for Jesus' reign to be known on planet Earth. The Lord's Prayer, we always pray that, uh, Thy kingdom come, finish it. Why didn't he say on heaven as it is on earth? Why did he say on earth as it is in heaven? Because through us, the reign of heaven should be brought to earth. On earth, as it is in heaven. How is it in heaven? Jesus is on the throne. We dethrone God in Genesis 3. We dethrone God in our lives when we try to define reality and try to make it up as we go. But in heaven, that never happens. God is always on the throne in heaven. Jesus is sitting at his right hand. And so when I, do, when I participate in the gospel, I do everything in my power to put Christ on the throne. And this is what the world needs so desperately today. It's so overdue. This is the mystery. He says he's made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure for which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times reach their fulfillment. When have the times reached their fulfillment? When Jesus hung on the cross, he said, Father, it is finished. Time's up. It's fulfilled. And now Jesus has this church, this body of Christ, who is to put him on his throne. Oh, we love to, we love to put ourselves on the throne. We love to put our pet projects on the throne. We love to put our new things on the throne. We like to put everything on the throne except Jesus. And as a believer, I don't have a choice. When I say, Jesus, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God, I'm giving him my allegiance and my loyalty to him only, not to my family, not to my country, not to any earthly thing, any earthly enterprise. I'm giving my allegiance to him and him alone. And my job then in my life is to put him, everything I can do to put him on the throne. In other words, to show people that he is reigning. God's eternal purpose controls all his actions. And that purpose was conceived in the past. It'll go through eternity future. But God's eternal purpose was the church of Jesus Christ. The enemy is at work dividing us, but God's kingdom should be at work uniting us. See how that works? We fight what? With, not with the weapons of the world, but we fight with these new weapons, the weapons of the gospel, the weapons of the, of, of the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. The third thing I'm supposed to do is I need to be an ambassador of reconciliation. Paul says this in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. It's on your notes. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. What does that mean? That means when I see people, I don't look at them how my cable news network is telling me I'm supposed to look at them. I don't look at them based on my friends on Facebook and telling me how I'm supposed to look at them. I don't look at them how the world says I'm supposed to look at them. Paul says from now on, we, we no longer regard anyone from the worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Why? Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, a new creation has come. The old is gone. The new is here. Remember, the old in the world doesn't ever go away. But in Christ, through reconciliation, the new has come. And what does it say? He has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ. Not counting people's sins against them. Isn't that great news? 
God doesn't count your sins against you if you are in Christ. And you know what that means? You need to stop counting people's sins against them. We are reconciled, and we are to be reconciling. We are reconciled to Christ, and he says, not, and he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. You know what the ambassador does? The ambassador serves at the pleasure of the leader of the country. Whatever leader it is can appoint an ambassador, and the ambassador goes. And what's the ambassador supposed to do? The ambassador is supposed to take the message that the leader gives him to send or her to send. What happens when the ambassador doesn't give the message that the leader once sent? They get recalled, and then there's a new ambassador. And so Paul says we're ambassadors of Jesus, that we are given this message, and we are to give the message that our leader, Jesus, has given us to send. And if we start giving another message, we might just get recalled. But we've been given this message of reconciliation. Gilbert Belazan said this, Christ did not die just to save us from sins, but to bring us together into community. After coming to Christ, our next step is to be involved in community. A church does not, does not experience community as a parody or a sham. We are bought into this what? New community, this new fellowship. The church looks different from the world. The church acts different from the world. We are ambassadors for Christ. We have been reconciled to God, which means we are now reconciled to each other. And I'm an ambassador for that reconciliation. The early church, the Romans stood in awe of the church. They saw people who had formerly hated each other, and they began to love each other, and they began to serve together in Jesus' name. Did you know the church of Jesus Christ in that early centuries and it's what it's supposed to look like today. It was a classless society. Remember as we walk through Corinthians, when Paul says in Corinthians, the directors about the Lord's Supper, he says, some of you are coming drunk. <laughs> You're eating a lot and drinking a lot before you get here. Don't you have homes you can eat in? Some of you are going hungry. Because in that, even in that First Corinthians church, they, they were still divided by class, the, the haves and the have-nots. Paul says this shouldn't be. The church should not be divided by class. His members didn't regard social status, color, or position. It didn't matter if you were the senator and you came to the church in Corinth. Everybody just knew you as Joe. They didn't use last names in the early church. You know why? Because that would distinguish upper class from lower class. It would put a definition on who you were. And so they simply greeted each other by their first name. Or they greeted each other by brother and sister. It doesn't matter who comes into the church. When we're in the church, we're all on the same ground. It doesn't matter if you're the highest king or the lowest pauper. In Christ, we are on the same playing field, on the same ground. What does the world do? The world tries to divide us. The world tries to bring us in and say, well, you're a little better. It always cracks me up. Um, <clears throat> people in the church, uh, you know, have the, have the degrees down to their belly button. Well, I'm the doctor, Reverend, Ph.D., good to meet you, Bob. Come on in. Leave your degrees at the door. That's not how it works in the kingdom of God. The longer your title, the more humility you're going to need to be a part of the kingdom. And that's how it is. But we love the distinctions. We love to make... And so the church, there was no Jew or Greek, no slave or free, no rich or poor, 
Now, those things did exist in the culture at large, but when the, in the church, they were different. And so the, for the first few hundred years, the Christians just knew each other as brothers and sisters in Jesus. Here's what Jesus did. In his death, Jesus took all social distinction, all racial tensions, all forms of human separation, and he crucified them. And so now when I'm in Christ, I am to work to be a reconciler. Wherever I am, reconcile with people who are different from me. Reconcile with people who are different income levels. Who, my job now is to be a reconciler, not a divider. The church of Jesus stands as something totally different. And that's the mystery that Paul was talking about. And how do we do this? We have this Holy Spirit in us. God put this seal on us. A seal, if you ever watch the movies, they jumped a little bit of wax. Then they take the signet ring and they plop it in the wax and they dry it off with it. And so the person who receives it knows that it hasn't been tampered with. The Holy Spirit is that seal on our lives that marks us as authentic. And we are going to be delivered to the place that we need to be going. We have the seal. And not only that, we also have a deposit. We have a down payment. And the Holy Spirit is that down payment. And so now, when the bill comes due, when our last breath is breathed and our time is up, we have the Holy Spirit as a down payment. And God says, I put a down payment on this car and I want to drive it into glory land. That's you. And that's me. And we are different, and we are to be different, and we are to look different in our actions and our love for one another. That is the mystery of the church. And I know the message has gotten lost, and I know it hasn't always been that. But can we, oh, can we hold up the ideal of what God wants the church to be? And then to be that, can we hold up the ideal of what the body of Christ is supposed to be? And then we live and we strive to make that a reality. It's up to every one of us. It's up to each of us as part of the church to be a reconciler for God. Because we have been reconciled to him through Jesus. Listen, the church is the only hope of the world. When has politics ever fixed anything? Never. When has science ever fixed anything? It fixes something, but you all read the side effects on those drugs. It's pages and pages and pages and pages and pages. And the drug side effects are longer than the commercial for the drug. But science fixed it. And oh, by the way, these 500 things could happen. It doesn't work that way. The church is the hope of the world. And we in Christ are the church. Amen? Let's stand. We're going to pray. And we're going to sing just a challenge that, Father, no matter how we come, that you can change us. Father, we do live in just some crazy times. And, Father, forgive, forgive us, forgive me, for when I forget whose I am and I get caught up in all the stuff and forget I'm a part of the church of Jesus Christ. And that, Father, through Jesus, we've been reconciled to you. And so, Father, would we be that place of continued reconcilement, of not waging war as the world does, but truly putting Jesus on the throne, and living our lives to exalt him. Father, all of us want to be free from our past. And we have that in Jesus. We are new creatures and new creations. We are broken and we can be made whole. We can be mended in Jesus. We come just as we are. But Jesus changes us and makes us new. Father, we commit this to you over the next few moments as we sing. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.